Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. Hi everybody, uh, welcome from PaizoCon to those of you watching on our Twitch channel and to those of you in the audience, I hope you're having a great PaizoCon. Yes! So, so thank you all for coming and thank you for joining us. This is a seminar called The Future of Pathfinder. And uh, I've got, I'm joined by literally the most expert people on that topic in the entire multiverse, the design team for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. So, uh, yes, how about a little hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, these guys have been working on this project sort of officially for about three years, sort of unofficially since the day we put Pathfinder 1 to bed, uh, if not slightly before. And uh, it's been great to see it all culminate. Um, we're at the stage now where the first month of products are all at the printer and we're just kind of waiting for them to come in and get to hold them in person. And we're very, very excited about the new game and especially we're excited because you guys through the playtest efforts and through your commentary on message boards and emails and in person have really helped us to refine it and make it the best version of Pathfinder that there has ever been. So these guys are gonna talk a lot about uh, what's coming in the game and what they're most excited about. Uh, I'll do my best to feed some questions as a moderator and and uh, then we'll take some questions both from the in-house audience and the Twitch channel. Um, before we do that, let's do a little bit of introductions. I am Eric Mona. I am the publisher and chief creative officer at Paizo. And uh, how about you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Logan Bonner. I'm a member of the design team with these dorks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, uh, Jason Bullman. I'm the director of these dorks. Uh, and uh, Stopping here. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. I, uh, <laughs> I'm Mark Seifter. I'm also a member of these dorks. <laughs> I'm uh, Stephen Raddy McFarland, the senior designer, and uh, at the end of the table of all these dorks. Yeah. Nice, nice. Wait, I. Oh. Okay, <laughs> so um, we've had an opportunity to be running demos of Pathfinder 2nd Edition here at PaizoCon. Um, if you haven't had a chance to check those out, they're right outside the sort of registration area in between the Paizo store and the organized playroom in the Grand Ballroom. Um, and you guys obviously have been working with uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition from its embryonic stage to post, you know, core rulebook, post bestiary, stuff that's coming out in 2020 already. Um, but have all all of you run demos so far, or some Pathfinder Second Edition games at the show so Delves, far this year? Or Delves, your own games, anything? I've yeah. run my own game. I would love yeah. to hear from you guys who have inhabited these rules more than anybody else. Now that you are playing with not the playtest versions, not rough drafts around the office, but the actual Pathfinder Second Edition rules here at PaizoCon, what has sort of surprised you the most? And now that you're seeing it in play, what are you kind of most excited about and most proud of just from the experiences so far in the last 48 hours? And feel free to go in any order. Uh, I, I think one of the things that uh, happened to me yesterday, I only ran one Delve slot I've been running, uh, the you Jackals and the Glass Cannon podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've been, I've been, I ran a Delve slot and I had somebody sit down who had never played Pathfinder before. Um, they, they were here because they had been playing a, a little bit of Starfinder, but, but they had no Pathfinder experience at all. And I was like, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. And I, I think it took two minutes for her to grok 
how the game worked. I mean, obviously she's a gamer and had game experience, but just understanding, okay, it's your turn, you get to do three things. Well, like what kind of things? Um, uh, move, draw a weapon, I don't know, anything you can think of is probably one thing. And just being able to roll someone in from a kind of intuitive experience of just, just tell me what your character wants to do and we'll make that happen. Like, oh, I want to move over there, I want to draw my weapon, I want to attack. Great, that's your turn, we're done, let's move on. Um, and being able to kind of just understand that, yep, almost everything you do is roll that d20, add the number, and, you know, hope you get a 20, don't, don't get a 1. <laughs> like, it was, it you know, that explanation was basically what I gave her at the table, and she was playing and having fun within two minutes. It, it, and, and, and I'm not sure I could do that with first edition. I, I, I think I could get close, but I'd have to fudge it and do an awful lot of hand-holding, whereas in this she, she knew what she was doing and was rolling along just fine. Cool, cool. Yeah. How about the rest of you? Well, in my, um, I came here from my fighter squad game with a short break in between. Fighter squad. And wait, wait, wait. What is fighter squad? Fighter, <laughs> it is all caps. Fighter squad! Exclamation mark. Right. Okay. So what is fighter squad? <laughs> fighter squad is a team of. It's a very like got a very eighties style theme nice. of the world is in chaos. Only fighter squad are strong enough to defeat the chaos. <laughs> Please tell me it has some sort of cheesy intro where they're like punching liches yeah. and <laughs> dragons. Yeah. And that is arcade game style. They move from flip map to flip map, fighting things, and chicken comes down and they get healed up. And <laughs> yes. Okay, I think we got the chicken. So, yeah, yeah. Let's like a chicken. The point. Well, you asked. The point is, we we did eleven combats in a four hour game session. We, we started as first level fighters and randomly leveled up to level 14, beating a level 17 Lord of Chaos at the end when one of the fighters walked through a prismatic sphere, survived, on the next round made six attacks that all hit and killed it. Oh no! Got kill still by the fighter who threw a ghost out of his body at the... What? And it did negative energy damage. Anyway, that's what every Pathfinder 2 game is going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The point is, <laughs> to, to, to get a takeaway from this, the fact that we ran 11 combats yeah. and leveled up to 14 in four hours was very strange and impressive to me. That's great. That's it great. was random. They didn't get to pick their feats. They got a random feat so that we could do it quickly. Sure, sure. That's great. Steven, Logan, do you guys want to chime in on this one? I mean, uh, probably the riff on that. Uh, there was last year, it's still the play test, but uh, it, at least told me we were going in the right direction. I went to a uh, librarian slash retailer uh, slash distributor event where they had a thing called speed gaming. And I had to explain and run uh, basically three encounters of, of uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition within 20 minutes, really? mostly to people who had never played a role-playing game before. And I did that seven times in a row. Um, and uh, it, it, it pleased me and amazed me at how, how easy that it was able to be picked up by people who had never even rolled a D20. Yeah. Um, and uh, as, as I'm running more games of it, uh, to people of varying degrees, I'm finding the same thing over and over again, which makes me go, ah, all right. <laughs> at least, you know, that, that part's very, very good. Yeah, that's fantastic. Logan, how about you? Uh, I think uh, I think a lot of these touch on with like kind of the speed of play. A lot of that has to do with the action economy system, um, and I think that's one of the things I've really liked is seeing in games from one turn to another the same character is doing different things because yeah. they feel like they've got a little more flexibility. I'm seeing people move around a lot more. I'm seeing like, well, I made my two attacks, 
my third one's probably not going to hit, so I'm going to try this thing yeah. uh, that often ends up paying really cool dividends because you haven't kind of locked yourself into a full attack and, and that kind of stuff, or your whole turn is just casting a spell. So um, I'm really enjoying that, getting to see kind of the creative ways people are using that. That's awesome. So um, uh, I got a couple more questions, but one of the things I want to say is um, what this seminar is and what this seminar isn't. So this is really about the rules. Uh, we have got the banquet later tonight where we're going to be doing product reveals. I'm not saying you won't be able to trick us into accidentally revealing a product. We're all very tired. Um, but uh, but the, the, And then this this isn't sort of like, what's Paizo up to in 2020 and all that? That seminar is tomorrow. That's the 2019 and beyond. So that's why we've got the game designers here. And I want to keep the focus as much on the game as humanly possible. And uh, so I want to use that as an opportunity to transition. Um, you guys have had, uh, you had a seminar uh, yesterday, a panel called mm -hmm. Moving On from the Playtest, right? Yeah. Where it was like, here's the lessons we learned from the playtest and here's some of the changes that you can look forward to that we that basically came from the players. And I think mm -hmm. that's great. And, and I've been looking at uh, some of the commentary on Reddit mm -hmm. or on our message boards about that in particular and I've seen a lot of people focusing in on a comment that you guys made about in particular I think the context was was magic wands and some of the changes mm -hmm. that happened there but sort of the thing that you guys had said made you really excited about some of those changes is the design space that it opens up yeah. and and I know what you mean as talking to you guys all the time at Paizo and as a, uh, a manager of game designers at the very least but I'm not sure that uh, the audience necessarily understands what that term means so could you guys talk a little bit uh, both about what does design space mean and in what ways did you make changes consciously or via playtest feedback uh, to add the opportunity for more design space and maybe an example of something in Pathfinder 2nd Edition that you feel really has has done that, has created more opportunities for design? So, um, I, just to give a, 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 a talk about the concept, uh, design space is kind of what we say when we, when we build rules, when we set down the framework of how a game works. The design space is what we create for ourselves in the future. It's how we build the rules, how we structure things together to make space for us to do cool things in the future. Uh, in first edition, when we uh, invented archetypes, that opened up a whole new world of a lot of design space for almost every class. But because of the way we built it, some classes actually didn't get much design space on this. We couldn't build very many cleric archetypes because clerics didn't have very many class features for us to swap out. So that's why you didn't initially see very many cleric archetypes. In the grand scheme of things, from the core classes, they ended up with some of the least uh, in total number. So that design decision in saying, okay, the way archetypes work is we swap out a class feature for another class feature meant that classes without design, without class features, didn't have much design space. Whereas somebody like the monk, endless. He's nothing but class features. <laughs> or we could change everything about him, and we oftentimes did. You, you could end up in a spot where you could take three different archetypes and swap out almost the entire build. When it came to the new addition to the game, one of the things that we were very deliberate about is how we structured and how we built the pieces that we were trying to build, and, and how we did that in a way that opened up more design space for us in the future. Uh, I'll, I'll give uh, one example that I'm super excited about, um, and that's the way that we built ancestries. So the way ancestries work is you pick your ancestry, then you pick a heritage. The heritage is generally some physiological manifestation of your parentage of where you came from. Uh, and then you start getting feats. Well, that the way we structured that in and of itself opens up a whole bunch of new options. In first edition, we had alternate 
racial traits that you could swap out that kind of worked like archetypes for your race traits. But now we can just add more feats and be like, choose different feats. And the feats are all the cultural training and, 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 and things that are learned from an ancestry. But we also have these heritages. And you know, we, we made half-orc and half-elf a heritage choice because we said you're, an, uh, you're a human, but half of you is an orc. That's part of your heritage. Well, that opens up things like how we do, you know, ASMR and tieflings, because heritages don't necessarily have to be tied to just one ancestry. We could put out a ASMR heritage that you could take if you were an elf, a human, and then all of a sudden it opens up all these options for you. So it allows us to build the tools once and use them in multiple different places. So it opens up a whole new avenue for us to do things. Um, so that, that's kind of what we're talking about. And, and, and that's, that's my example. I'll let everybody else uh, toss in cool uh, ideas and, and thoughts. And Jason's kind of talking about like, this is like a hard limit in the game that's in there. <coughs> um, but it's also true of things where it's not necessarily the rules themselves are entirely restricting you, but kind of the way uh, that the game is played and the metagame of it uh, restricting you. So for example, I'm going to go pick some magic items. Well, I need my magic armor, and I need a amulet of natural armor, and I need a ring of protection, right? Um, we took a lot of those things where it's like, there are a whole bunch of cool magic items. We want you to be able to buy them. But there's enough uh, kind of just like basic stuff you feel like you need that that's kind of restricting how much you have to spend on those other things. So there's a lot of those things where we kind of boiled down those essentials into as small a number of things as possible so that you had kind of more freedom with your other choices. Um, so that's, that's kind of one where it's, it's just the way the game is played suggests these are the best options and we wanted to open up new avenues. Um, yeah, so things like that, weren't quite as samey. It was like that moment when we said cloak of resistance is just going away. Yeah. And instead we're just going to allow you to through what is now the armor uh, armor rune, rune. Yeah. Uh, that allows you to uh, use your armor for a saving throw bonus because we didn't need a separate item for it. And instead, no one was wearing that cool cloak of the bat we gave them because they had a cloak of resistance plus three and they were like, well, I'm wearing that instead, sorry. My saves are more important than being able to flap around as a bat. And my and PF2 were for the crown game, about half of them have cloak of the bat now, so. Yeah. And <laughs> it's really good. And if you need to sneak around because you're doing more for the crown, turning into a bat, nobody's gonna suspect we, the bat. We also kind of shrunk the scale of those, so instead of having uh, five different armor bonuses, it's three now, because we heard a lot of people saying like, we don't want the items to matter as much as they do. We want the character to matter more and the items to be cool on top of that, but not to be uh, having to upgrade it over and over and over so so frequently. That was your refrain throughout the playtest and we heard you. I'll take the easy one that Jason sort of led into before he went to his, his direction, which was archetypes. Mm. Jason talked about them in first edition. He even mentioned one of the flaws with Cleric. We knew going into second edition that we wanted archetypes to have a bigger design space even than they ever had before. So by creating archetypes such that they have their own feats, that not only means that you don't have to take everything. That was a problem. Sometimes the archetype was like, oh, it has this five things I want and this one thing that is really useless and I'm forced to trade out something I really wanted for this useless thing because that's my archetype. It lets you pick and choose which aspects of the archetype you want. It lets us give a bunch of more stuff for the archetype. We still built the design space in for feature swap outs that are tied to a particular class like Pathfinder first edition archetypes. There are none yet. The design space exists. That's a, another example of opening up design space. 
And then the best part to me about having archetypes was feats. When Pathfinder First Edition, when we put out an archetype, and it, let's say it was mega popular archetype, but it's done. Maybe we like did something weird and had a feat that only that archetype could take. That happened a few times. I think some paladin archetype had a feat in ultimate combat or something. I don't know. But in second edition, we can just totally put a spread or a page or some section that is, hey, here are new feats for that, that archetype from that other book that are of various levels. We can do that at any time. So if you tell us, oh my gosh, the, um, the Minotaur Archer archetype that Jason put into an archery book is the best ever, it can get more feats. It can become more. So uh, one, one thing that I want to note on archetypes, because they are such an important part of our game, um, is that the way that they're built now is so that any class can take them on the whole. Um, they, they won't always be like that, but, but many of them will be. So if we want to put out a cool pirate archetype, which we did in the playtest, although the one in the playtest I don't know that I would call cool. It had a, a lot of flaws uh, that we <laughs> were fixing. Uh, uh, but it, it, you know, let's say we do come out with a cool pirate archetype. Well, I don't have to do one for the bard and then write another one that's really similar for the rogue because they're swapping out different class features. Right. Now I just write it once. And what this does is it opens up a really cool opportunity to be like, oh, you're running Skull and Shackles. Cool. Well, you can have your cleric, your fighter, your rogue, and your wizard party if, if you just want the kind of core <coughs> basics. And then all of them can also take the pirate archetype, which means they can be cool pirates, and they can also still do their job at the table. <laughs> you don't have to worry about being like, yeah, sorry, guys, I don't have any of those cool things you rely on out of a wizard. I traded that all out so I could swing on ropes. And, sorry. And, <laughs> and one of the most important things about that is when we build design space, often it costs page space. Page space yeah. is precious. And we want to give you the most options we can. We can only fit a certain amount. Do you guys know how many pages we spent on archetypes that can use guns that aren't gunslingers in first edition? There's one for the wizard. There's one for every class. If we just write one, now you've all got it. We've got those pages for something else. So we can give you more options in less space. It, it occurs to me, Mark, as well, that if you did, let's, let's say you did a shootist archetype or whatever, mm -hmm. instead of having to um, do a different one for every class, I mean, look, here's something that's going to come up in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. More classes beyond the core rulebook, including classes that we've yep. never seen before. So you could then do shootist uh, archetype uh, feats that work with some of the other complementary abilities some of those new classes have yeah, as well. You probably saw what people were books. saying on the internet, which is absolutely a design space we recognize that you guys figured out, which is you could make an archetype feat that requires that you came into that archetype from a class. You right. could create a multi-class feat that requires a very specific two-class combination. Right. We can do that now. That's we pretty, have that design space. That's pretty awesome. Steve, so we can wanna... still make a gun wizard. Yeah. I, <laughs> we like to talk a lot about design space because a lot of times we look at it from the designer's point of view. But if you, it, the, the cousin to that, or maybe just the evil twin of that to all of you, is it's uh, interesting choices you can make with your characters, right? Yep. We're talking about the same thing. Anytime that a, a class or a player-facing rule sort of shuts down your choice, either because it's very essential that you have it, which sometimes happens, or it's just, or the rules tell you you have to have this, um, that closes off design space. So through every aspect of P2, we've tried to open up as much, much more design space as possible. So down the line, we can give you even more choices in the characters that you want to create. And, and similarly, like one of our main focuses through this was making sure that those choices you're making have an impact. 
and have a lot fewer like, well, this is a feat I'm only taking to get this other feat. We really wanted it to be like, I'm making this decision and it just made me cooler right now. Yep. Uh, and getting back to the original bit yeah. about wands, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, uh, sure, the, the original sure. question about wands. Why are we so excited about wands? Right. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll admit, the decision about what we were going to do with wands was actually decided very late in the process. We hemmed and hawed about this for a long time, going back and forth about, do they have charges? Do we change them into something else entirely? Do they just become a way for you to spontaneously swap spells and cast whatever the wand has, right? We played around with a lot of different options. And the one that we settled upon was one that was very, very, very simple. We, we decided, you know what, for the core rulebook, let's find something that's very simple but opens up space for us in the future. And what that was is just like, yeah, you can get a wand, it's basically a spell and a stick, it's the way that you have a spell and a stick that you cast once a day. That's it. It's just, here, have so, an extra spell. I've got a wand of fireball. Yeah, I cast fireball once per day on the wand. Yep. Okay. I can overcharge it. I can I can try and cast that fireball a second time, but I might destroy the wand in the process. Okay, a couple questions about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because I've been reading the message boards yeah, 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 and stuff. Yeah. So, so uh, question number one yeah. is I've got the wand, Yeah. and let's say it's a spell that's usually like a two-action activity. Yeah. Is casting yeah. the spell out of the wand a one-action yeah. activity no, or a two-action? Same, same no way. Okay. And then the secondary question, there's a I like how you're just being the voice of the internet. Oh, God. I got a whole, <laughs> I got a whole list. No, if you're wandering around with your wand of feather fall my, out. my second question, because there was some some questions about this and some maybe yeah. some confusion, is okay. So can we talk a little bit more about pushing and like the wand and trying to get that extra thing out of it? And then when it doesn't work, is the wand permanently broken? Is it get the broken condition? There's questions about that. It, it, it's it's roughly a 50-50 that it just gets broken or it gets totally destroyed. Okay, that that's about okay. it. I think it's actually a fifty-five. When 45, you fail yeah. to do the thing, yeah, it's a flat. Check. What, yeah. It's a flat check. Yeah. Okay, so you you're shooting for a, stat, no a static yeah, you number always on a D20. Get the second you, spell. you get that spell. So if it's an emergency, oh, you do. Like, oh, you get like, oh, okay. I need that that second yeah. fireball. That's I'm gonna get it. I'm going to get the fireball no matter what, but whether or not I have that wand anymore is and, now an open And, and we expect awesome. that 98% of the time when you use a wand, you won't do that. But that 2% of the time, it's going to be clutch. Yeah. All right, all right. I'm trying to anticipate questions that have been asked. Now. Right. My wand has the broken condition. Obviously, it's if it's destroyed, it's panel. destroyed. <laughs> How do I fix a broken wand? Repair. repair. Yep. Yes. With the skill check. The repair yep. skill Amazing. check. Amazing. Okay, yep. great. So, all right. Uh, and then, With and then prayers. Talking about the space we opened up, is we then decided that wands are a category of things, and we even included a handful of these in the book, where it's a wand that when it casts its spell, it does something special. Like fireball, and then they're all lit on fire. Yeah, so there's, oh, a, nice. wand of, okay. there's a wand of fireball in there that it has the added effect that the fireball that comes out of that wand lights everyone on fire. Okay, now here's a technical that. question that only I'm curious about. Would a wand like that be called a wand of fireballs, or would you give it some special? It has a special I think it's called wand of smoldering fireballs. fireballs. Yeah. Oh. Okay, rad, 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 rad. Okay, and then, and then the, the wand in, of widening is in, also in the future. Yeah, yeah we could even start doing crazier, weirder things, right? It, it, it's all about defining it as a new category and then playing with the space later. Uh, because it's the core rule book. We only have, right. you know, we only have 640 pages, so we gotta cram as much as we can in there. Right. Because if I would have asked him for one more page, he would have choked the life from me. So, <laughs> we barely got the last two pages I mean, of okay, okay. Let's be but, clear. And from like last year, I was like, the one thing is I want it to be fewer pages than first edition. First edition is a big book. And they're like, sure thing, boss. And then they're, yep. and, and we did then they're not. like, 
uh, can we have more pages? And I'm like, no, I'd prefer not. And, and we, we as we want got fewer pages, we want to be more readable. Right, right, we want more, right, more art. stuff, we want more art. Yes, yes. I mean, come on. And I want so, more game in a smaller space. But, but by the end, <laughs> but by the end of it, when, as we were getting closer to the end and closer to the ship date, I'm just like, do you guys need more pages? What do you need? Just tell me what you need. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's how that works. Okay, so uh, I got two other questions I'd love to hear from everyone on, and then I think we're going to open it up to, to everyone else's questions. And my two questions are similar but different. And so the first one has a stipulation, which is I'd like you to limit the context to our launch slate products, okay? So that'd be the core rulebook, the Pathfinder bestiary, Fall of Plague, Stone, Adventure, the first Adventure Path, if you're uh, uh, up to date on that, and the Lost Omens World Guide, okay? And if you really want to answer a question about the combat pad, yeah. you can, but, oh, but let's not. Right. Okay, <laughs> so, so here's my question. We've talked a lot about philosophy. We've talked a lot about what you guys are excited about, but we haven't really specifically spoiled a lot. So what I would like each one of you guys to do is, and, and you know, I'm not holding you to it necessarily, but like I would like you to reveal something about in those passels of products from the context of the rules that you think nobody at PaizoCon, in the chat room, on Paizo.com, nobody knows yet. Anything. Well, and by anything, I, I mean, yes. don't, don't say anything yes. that's going to make I am definitely going to reveal something about the world guide because I believe it's the only product other than maybe Plagestone that does not have any panel where we're going to have anybody okay, talk great. about it. Why don't you go first, so, then, Mark? All right. So the first world guide, in terms of the rules, as we did tell you online, so you guys do know that it has um, a bunch of backgrounds and it has a number of archetypes. So I will reveal that one of those archetypes is the Hell Knight Armiger. So if anybody told you you cannot play a Hell Knight in Hell Knight Hill with the first world guide, that information is incorrect. All right. And so the Hell Knight Armiger is kind of the, 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 the early yes, career Hell Yes, it's the entry Knight. level, yeah. I'd love yeah. to be a Hell Knight. And that also introduces two new little pieces of small things in it. One of them is the fact that the Helmet Armiger is an archetype that really one day hopes to become another archetype. Yeah. So it counts, it lets you go into any other Hell Knight archetype out of it before you've taken enough feats to satisfy its dedication and it counts them all together. Okay, that's awesome. And it has an access entry. We told you about rarities and how some things are common, some things are uncommon, and some things are rare. Certain things, such as the Hell Knight Armiger archetype, have an access entry that if you satisfy the clause in the access entry, it's normally uncommon, meaning you could find it even if you don't. But if you satisfy it, it becomes common for you. Essentially, you gain access to it. That's what happens when you find something that's not common. So it, it, it is a new way to get things by satisfying that clause, other than going into a Hell Knight Citadel and saying, please, everybody, please train me into being a Hell Knight. Or just begging your GM to allow Or begging your GM to allow yeah. an uncommon option. It is called an, the access entry. So what would be an example of like the Hell Knight's access entry? Is it that you're so from Cheliax? Is if it... you're from uh, anywhere in the old Cheliax region, because there's citadels all up around that region, and you started there as your character, and you, then you put in your backstory, I have been accepted to be an army girl or whatever, you're entitled to you're be to able to take that archetype at second level as long as you're a member of the Hell Knights, which Sweet. is still a prerequisite. I don't think anyone knew that. That was a good one, Mark. Yeah. Good job. Okay, how about uh, one of the rest of you guys? 
I'm still trying to decide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can talk about Plaguestone a little bit. Cool. Because we've talked almost nothing about that. We haven't talked much about, about that, that at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Plaguestone is the uh, first uh, introductory uh, standalone adventure for uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. The Fall of Plaguestone. The, the Fall of Plaguestone. And uh, it's designed to be the adventure that tells the story about how your group came together. And the uh, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I will talk about the very opening scene. Is all of you in the back of a wagon traveling through Isker <laughs> <laughs> with a uh, one-eared cook named Cookie, uh, who uh, who is a one-eared elven cook who can barely hear you and is constantly screaming at you uh, as you make your way to the terrible little tiny tiny rural town of Plaguestone, which is known for its turnips. <laughs> so, uh, you, you even have the opportunity of becoming a turnip cop during it uh, and uh, investigating uh, a, a crimes and misdemeanors around town in the name of the turnip authority. So, uh, yes, I hope you will all uh, enjoy it. Uh, I think this is also the thing that I'm, I'm kind of excited about uh, from, the, from the module from mechanical senses that allows us it's kind of one of the first examples uh, that uh, we were able to kind of put together about how an adventure, by completing it, by playing it, will give you access to things that you couldn't otherwise get. And we're not gonna pick those things up necessarily and just put them in other products. So if you ever wanna get some of the cool special things that you can get, from saving the town of Plaguestone, I mean, you know, the, imagine the magical turnips you could get. Um, <laughs> they only come from there, and you have to play the adventure to do it. The, the thought and idea behind this was, um, and this kind of speaks to our rarity system, was that I want to be able to pick up a character sheet, look at the choices and options you have on your sheet, and know what adventures you played just by what options were on there. Because some of them are locked to specific adventures. I'm not gonna give you any specifics, but there's something that you can acquire in that adventure that is ridiculously awesome for the right kind of character, and those who get it will be super, super excited. Um, so I, 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 I can't really give any spoilers, but it's that sort of thing that we're really excited about. That if you do the right thing, if you, if you take the right steps, you could end up with these cool, unique features that you can't get by just building a character out of the core rulebook. Cool, cool. Steven, Logan, you guys have any that you want to contribute? Um, I've got kind of a weird one, so I'll let Steven close out with a really cool, exciting one, because mine's going to be a little uh, a little kind of off-kilter. Okay, cool. Um, no so pressure. in the... Off-kilter. <laughs> <laughs> Steven loves pressure. He'll be happy. Um, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the game mastering uh, chapter of the core rulebook, um, we actually devote a pretty good number of words to kind of creating your uh, gaming environment and kind of uh, uh, happy and safe and functional game for everybody. And one of the things that we have in there is a discussion of like kind of the types of content you want to put in your game. And uh, we have something there called the Pathfinder Baseline, which just kind of says like, these are some things that might squick people out in your game. And we're going to kind of say, here's like a nice simple set of rules you can use. If your group, uh, so like we don't depict torture in a typical game. And just kind of saying like, this is something that works for most groups. And if your group wants to deviate from these, have a group discussion about it and kind of figure out where your personal boundaries are as a group. Um, so I think there's some good stuff in there to kind of, uh, especially for new people coming into the game, to kind of establish like, here's how to um, do some of the kind of social contract that comes with being in a gaming group and, and having a game. Cool. And hopefully that will 
help with some arguments in Pathfinder Society and stuff as well. I'm sure it will solve everything. Steven. <laughs> well, so there are expanded rules on torture in the game. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think I'm going to end with something in the bestiary, uh, a, a bit story-wise. Um, uh, it turns out uh, axiomites are actually a type of aeon. Oh, God, that's a big spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is brand new, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's all I'm saying. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you guys, we'll let the internet stew on that one for a little bit. Uh, Aaron, do you want to jump in with some questions? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I will, uh, will. At this point, I think I've made the executive decision that uh, I'm going to go on to full church mode here and just pass the microphone to people in the room as <laughs> needed. It, you yes. know, that way you can all stay seated. But we'll start with a, a, a Twitch uh, question, which says, uh, how much of a factor, if any, was society play during the design process? Oh, great question. Um, I think, you know, uh, when we started out the design process for this, one of the first things that happened, and this was forever ago, and uh, we had check-ins and, and meetings that came after, was we kind of just opened up the floodgates to all of our departments to kind of say, what's working in the game? What isn't working for you? What do you want to see out of a new edition of the game? And I think nobody gave us more feedback than, than, than Pathfinder Society. Um, and, and some of it they had done even before we even had the meeting because their guidebook about what they allow in the game and what they don't allow in the game says an awful lot about what's working in the game and what isn't working in the game for <laughs> their true. environment. So being able to study that sort of stuff tells us a lot about what we're trying to do. One of my big goals, for example, uh, was to make sure that PFS could use crafting uh, as part of the game, right? That we wanted to find a way to make that work. And, and I, I think we did. I don't necessarily want to speak out of turn, but I, I think we, we did. It. You said, I am a, the design liaison to the organized play team. I sit in on their meetings. So Jason told me that. I went in, I said, how much money do you think you're looking for people to earn with their day jobs in between adventures? How much time do you think that would represent? What do you want to do? They gave some numbers, we kicked it back, we played around with it, and we have what I think is a very satisfying amount of stuff you can do during the downtime, but that also works great for them, and that is, as far as I know, is currently their plan is to allow it. I, they announced that they will, so yeah. it would be bad if they went Well, good, I was just double-checking. Okay, and, we, uh, and we, uh, we factored in uh, organized play a lot, but also a lot of the things that were good for them are also good for all home games. So there wasn't anything where it was like, well, we can't do this absolutely because it wouldn't work for Pathfinder Society. Right. But there's a lot of stuff that's like, this is going to make it smoother for home groups as well as for Pathfinder. Yeah, right. but I don't, I don't think that means that we backed away from empowering GMs to be yeah. the adjudicator we need them to be, right? I, I think some people can think that, you know, oh, you, you had to craft all these rules for Pathfinder Society, which means you needed to have everything run on Rails right. because that's the nature of some of the games that they need to be able to run. And we didn't have to do that. Great. So. Let's right. get another question yeah. from the audience. Hello. Uh, so, simple question. How many of the classes, or how many do not, have a option in at level one that you pick that is a focus similar to the Rogue was in the ah. play test? Like 10? 10 out uh, of 12. 10 out of 12 yeah. have it. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the fighter and the monk yeah. do yes. not. And, and but but I'll tell you I'll tell you why we decided that because, they don't need it because both of them have so many feats that build in so many different paths. We wanted you to really be able to build your own fighter or build your own monk yeah. without having to be a bit on a on a path. 
Whereas for some of the other uh, classes, that made a lot more sense. Like, imagine we made you pick to be a key mystic, and that meant you couldn't do lots of cool combos. We want you to be able to do both. Yeah. yeah. And, and, like, if you make a first-level monk, it's like, I'm going to pick that stance. That's You're effectively picking your path. It's just in the form of a beat. We wanted to be more flexible for those characters. Steven, yeah. do you have anything to add? No. Nope. Nope. Okay. Aaron? Okay. Great. Uh, I'll just go to. Uh, actually, a question from Twitch was just: What's the difference between a wand and a, a, a scroll now, mechanically? A scroll only works once. Wand yeah. is every day. Great. Yep. Thank you. Okay. And the scrolls hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to. Okay. I'm on the front row and I'm like six, six something. So, um, something that's actually been bothering me since the playtest. Uh, so you've been mentioning how you want to get rid of like this th this magic item needs to be in this slot. Like you constantly need to have a cloak of resistance, or else you're never going to be able to make your saves against anything. If that was what you were doing, then why did you make headband headbands of physical stats, uh, or headbands of mental stats, belts of physical stats, etc.? That's a good question. Uh, in the, in the yeah. All right. So um, I, 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 they're they're different from what they were in the playtest. First of all, uh, they are they are they are a little different. They're not um, too different. We so we we asked a lot of people whether or not they thought those items were interesting, and I, and I think a lot of people feel that oh, I put on the belt and become strong, is kind of a I cool item. Moment. Right, as a, as a concept, right. I mean, going back to the earliest days of the game, the the you know the gauntlets or the belt that make you strong is a is a good trope. There's a there's a good concept there. Um, what we're trying to avoid is and 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 that one in that case is an area where we're like, yeah, there should be a spot where you can finally get a magic item that makes you a little stronger or a little smarter or something like that. That made sense to us. There was a good narrative structure there. The thing that was the problem in first edition that we saw was just that of your you know 15 item slots, a good percentage of them were taken up by kind of what many saw as mandatory kind of items. It was like, you need your ring, you need your amulet, you need your cloak, you need your belt, you need your... And then all of a sudden you end up with just a couple slots left that's like, man, I hope I get a really evocative pair of bracers um, <laughs> because that's the only slot I have left. Um, and that just didn't quite really make magic items feel special. It felt like more you were like checking off a checklist. And these items are now cool, but they don't feel as mandatory as they once did. So uh, when it comes to those Apex items, there were there, we had discussions among all of us after the playtest, should we cut them? And we polled you guys, and the, what you gave us for results was a little conflicting. It wasn't enough to tell us to remove them. It was, you thought they were cool, you liked them, you thought maybe they were too mandatory also, but you didn't really, like, you wanted to be able to raise the stats, so overall, it was positive enough towards them that we didn't think that was enough to remove them. In a lot of ways, those are very iconic things, and that's why people didn't really want to get rid of them. And at a higher level, right, it feels really good to have those things. A, a lot of the mandatory slots that we, we sort of uh, thought about getting rid of and, and actually did get rid of, we've got a looser sort of slot mentality with this, this edition, was the stuff at, instead of picking a good, cool cloak at fifth edition, I feel saddled with this cloak. Or instead of... Uh, you know, a cool uh, arms item at this level, I'm, I, I feel like I need to do that because my stats demand it. Once you get higher level, having having those stat boost items, uh, all of a sudden that becomes cool and seems less mandatory, unless you're really well, kind of And, and we, also, we also built them differently so that they have some type of special ability. So 
in the first book, there's one for each stat, but we can keep building more and they can do different things, and there's going to be kind of more, more room to expand those as well. That's kind of back to the, uh, the design space discussion. We didn't just make, it gives you plus two to wisdom and does nothing else. All of them uh, just kind of okay. Uh, a question from Twitch, paraphrasing: What's the most important thing we need to know about rituals? Mark rituals. Okay, the most important thing you need to know about rituals, assuming you didn't know anything yet from the playtest, is that anybody who is good enough at that skill can cast them. So, if the fighter is very religious to Caden Kalian because he's Valoros, and you pour some ale over the tomb of the dead rogue and resurrect them back with a resurrection ritual if you need to. So that's the most important thing. There's a lot of other things. That's the most important. Okay, next question. Great. Uh, here. So one of my players in the playtest, um, he at one point decided to try to play a mute spellcaster because he was really excited about certain things about that I can't really remember what, but what he was frustrated about was the fact that only two spells in the entire core rulebook were accessible to him because pretty much all of them had a verbal component. And uh, his question was, is there going to be a little more variance or c could you perhaps say use sign language to in replace uh, to replace the verbal component has anyone else been following the really long thread about this Heck no okay i have uh, okay mark <laughs> um so there's a very long thread about this on the message boards during which people posit a huge number of possible options. And so we're going to read the whole thing right now. Nope. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're what, not. I, what I feel could be the best option for a sign language character that you guys came up with on the thread as well is to say, hey, you know what? They can do this thing where they do it with sign language, but it creates some kind of a necessary sound when you're doing it so that it doesn't just beat the silent spell and just become mechanically more powerful. And then you get it. It's not technically not giving you an advantage, but it's also letting you cast your spells. I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I particularly have a philosophy about jamming. If somebody wants to play a cool character that sings to them, find a way to do it, even if the rules sit there and, and say they don't, with, with exactly the, you know, the same limitations that Mark was describing. At the end of the day, we're all here to have fun playing a game uh, making characters that sing to us, and we should all uh, do our best to facilitate that. Well, and that's that's not just us giving you advice, game master to game master. That's actually in the book now. We have an entire section in the game mastering chapter that talks about, let's say you want a player who wants to play a character with a disability. They're mute. They're deaf. They're blind. How do you make that work? The game has conditions in it, but those conditions are really there to be like, what happens if you suddenly get struck with this and you're used to having that sense or anything, right? That's our way of uh, approximating a penalty, that you are a normal-sighted individual and all of a sudden you're blind. What's that like for you? That's not meant to be representative of what somebody who is blind their entire life deals with. 
And if you want to explore that as a character, and, and that's something that uh, one of your player characters wants to explore, we then give you tools and advice to say, this is how you can make that happen in the game, and they don't have to necessarily live with all the penalties that the blindness condition comes with, or the deafness condition, or being mute, being able to cast spells. We actually talk to you about, here's how you would make that work. The suggestion that Mark brings up is something that we would probably say, yeah, that's the way to do that, right? You know, that's yeah. the way that you can make this happen and still play the character you want to play. And, and it's important to note, as Jason says, that this is advice that's in there. Yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't want to do is kind of say, here are the hard-coded specific rules yeah. for it that then everybody in PFS looks at and says, oh, well, this is going to be more powerful, so all my characters are mute from now on. <laughs> right? We yeah. wanted it to be something where it needs to be a discussion between the GM and the player so that it is respectful to people who actually uh, live with those disabilities and that it is going to work for their game and isn't just kind of like a weird mechanical widget that isn't really yeah it, it always gets it always can get tricky when we're dealing with something that's basically a dry mechanical series of rules that sometimes speaks to people's very real life experiences in ways yeah. that aren't exactly sensitive so we try to be careful about that and, and offer that up as GM advice and, and try and talk you through it and figure out a way that works best for you Aaron What's the most important thing about combat maneuvers? What do you want us to know about combat maneuvers? Uh, so That's a good question. Combat, That's a really good question. Combat maneuvers are uh, part of the athletic skill. So there's shove, there's trip, there is uh, grab. There's grab. grab. Those are all available to anybody with an athletics check. And if you're trained in it, you can attempt to disarm as well. Um, and they, they, go, against, they yeah. go against your uh, fortitude or reflex DC, which is basically just 10 plus your reflex modifier or a 10 plus your fortitude modifier. Um, so they're pretty quick, pretty easy to do. You already have those numbers on hand. And yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of literally it. We just taught you all how to do all of them. Yep. That, that's Let me jump in then. So, okay, so Sorry. that's that's what, grapple yeah, is grapple. one of the actions? Yep. How's that different from, say, a monster's ability to grab? How does that work? That is an automatic success that they have to hit you first and it takes an extra action. Right. So they get to basically make an attack roll that deals damage and then they spend an extra action to right. grab you as if they made that And that's action. interesting. One of the things that, that I've been doing in the delves this weekend is like, Sometimes you want to do that grab, but because you moved up and yeah, did a couple yeah. of attacks, you can't. But There's an improved grab really that makes it free. Yeah. Yeah. Especially yeah. if Monsters you're a higher level tend to improve grab because it's just like, I don't have time for this. Awesome. <laughs> Let's get another question from the audience. Uh, hi, my name's Sam, Zark Titan on the forums. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to actually try to poke you for a spoiler. Cool. Um, because I heard try. Jason talking about heritages, and one of the first events I went to was the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Adventuring with Liam Merkel and... Wayne Reynolds was supposed to be there, but he was caught sketching. Sure. Um, but one of the things that I interestingly overheard was when they were discussing fumbus and grenades and explosives. And the DM was one of your editors, and she referenced how cheek pouches came up in someone she was looking at recently. <laughs> so I'm poking you I, I, for, like, is there something with more ancestries I, coming I, up? I don't know if we can spoil this, but fumbus does not have cheek pouches. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, you but don't want to take anything out of a goblin's cheek. <laughs> I don't even know what Make that a fortitude save. It would have had to be I, in a book it, that it, I was it, looking it, at. It might be in, for example, The Star Bestiary. Or Starfinder. Oh, right. Well, it could be in The Bestiary it's, It is Finder. in The Bestiary. Yeah, that's oh. what it is. Yeah, there is a spoiler. There, so it's that's in, right. The Bestiary, right? If of you course. are 
course. section, yeah. Isn't, of course. Isn't it? Radfolk? There might be somebody yeah. who uses... Are you talking about Radfolk? Yeah. There might be somebody who uses both about alchemy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're saying. There's a Radfolk in the vestiary. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There, there might be a stat block that uses both cheek pouches and alchemical items simultaneously. Yes, that should be pretty rad. We might be talking about butts. That's why you... Let's go to the room again. Aaron's a cheek pouch. A lot more creatures have Hi. Um... I love the versatility the new system gives to GMs, uh, even in organized play, as to monster tactics and whatnot. And I've always loved Paizo's design theory when it comes to giving GMs more versatility with what they can do with different types of monsters. With that in mind, uh, will there be ways to easily customize monsters on the launch, uh, such as class features or anything like that? Great question. Well, we give you, uh, there's two uh, simple templates in the book. Right off the bat, one to make an elite monster and one to make a weak. Yeah, and, then, um, and those are similar to what's in the yeah. playtest. And uh, I think that's the main tools you got in the best area. There's, uh, a, there, few there's, also more, there, there's a few little template. Yeah. So like you can make a lich uh, yeah. based on some basic rules, a ghoul, a ghost, some some creatures like that. Um, I mean, none of those is a huge surprise. I don't think that's a huge spoiler. Yeah, guess what? Uh, Lich wait. is still in the book. There's yeah. one, <laughs> there's one spoiler we can give them, which is a few monsters like the Lich, like the skeleton, like the zombie, actually have some customized abilities in there that say... Yeah, don't spoil my banquet speech, Mark. Okay. Well, I'll spoil something um, that, that I, it even goes beyond the banquet speech. There's a... There's a product that we're going to announce tonight that I won't say what it is right now, but one of the components of that product um, is some ways to customize monsters to make them more appropriate to different organizations in the, yeah. the world of Galarian and the Age of Lost Omens. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a very similar thing. I, I didn't want to totally cut you off. The, the skeleton is the one that I'm not showing off at all tonight. So skeletons. Oh, yeah. They can but, but they can they, collapse into a pile of bones to avoid a critical hit, but then they have to put themselves back together. This guy wrote that. Did we keep the skull ability? But where they throw the skull? Where they take, it and takes then their frighten, skull off yes. and throws it at you? But, but then <laughs> after, after that, it's, it's like it's blind. Or it's, it's, or it's blind until the skull rolls back to yeah. it and it puts it back on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I imagine when it uses that reaction to collapse into bones, somebody on the side is playing a xylophone. <laughs> We've got about five more minutes, so let's try and get a couple more questions, whether from the audience or from the channel. Uh, quickly, just a thank you to Aaron Shanks, our marketing manager, who is manning the microphone. Thank you, Aaron. Great, oh, thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll go back to Twitch for a moment. Now, this question is non-arcane spell uh, sorcerers seemed much weaker in the playtest for reasons. Has the sorcerer class been changed or improved to make it more even? Maybe you can talk about sorcerers or spellcasters in general. changed a fair amount. Um, I would not necessarily say that we weakened the arcane sorcerer in particular, but more so that we added a lot to sorcerers overall. When we asked you guys after the playtest about the different classes, you told us Wizard was very, very powerful, and you found it one of the most boring classes. It had the hugest gap in that direction. Where Sorcerer was among the most interesting of all the classes, and you found it to be very, very weak. So Sorcerers have added a number of very useful features. Their, um, their bloodline focus spells that they have are more interesting, um, more powerful, I think. There are a few new bloodlines that are super cool. And I will reveal one element about them in particular on top of that. 
They have a Bloodline Magic ability. Whenever they cast either their Bloodline Focus spell or any of the spells granted by their Bloodline, something extra happens that nobody else gets. Yeah. And it's different depending on what your bloodline is. All right, yeah. let's keep going Blood with magic. questions. Let's try to keep Blood it to one magic. answer per question, if uh, possible. Just to go back to combat maneuvers, you've obviously tied it to athletics, which is inherently tying it to strength. Have you any plans of giving dexterous characters accessibility to combat maneuvers such as trip or disarm, like you did in first edition? They have enough. <laughs> that, that fairly has enough. Let strength have something. They, 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 in, the, in the core book, I don't think we do. I think that's certainly uh, a ripe area for exploration in the future through feats and special features. We'll just make you pay for it. All right, question, 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 from, from, question from Twitter. Resonance is gone, but what do you have now to replace the things that Resonance and its various alternatives did in the playtest and the Resonance test, et cetera? Uh, you have to email me every time you use a magic item, and I either thumbs up or thumbs <laughs> up. Okay, like I said, one answer per question. <laughs> <laughs> So, so basically, there are a couple yeah. things we did uh, with resonance. So, the the part that people really liked from the resonance uh, system was the kind of I can wear this number of items thing. Uh, so, we have changed that to just there are ten items. You can wear ten invested items. Uh, there aren't any points for activating things. Um, so. Part of the, the fix for that is stuff like wands changing so that there's not just, well, infinite spells. Um, but there's also just kind of like, well, we're just going to live with magic items being more powerful. Like, yeah, I, I, think, I think we ultimately just decided, yeah, all right, we'll take this out, and I guess magic items are just a more powerful part of the game, and that's okay. Weapons and armor, those count against their limits? They, they count as... Uh, armor, uh, does. armor does. Armor does something it's, you're it's wearing. It's all worn things. You, you can only wear I think, 10. 10 yeah. items you can only wear on your person. But the to get sword you wield, benefit, yeah. the wand you use, the scroll you read, the potion you drink, none of that counts. Am I wearing a... Uh, you can wear 10 of, rings. Am I wearing a bag of holding? Nope. No, you're wearing no, a blue shirt. you're holding That's a bag thing. of holding. <laughs> okay, and so the items that are within my extra-dimensional space, for example, don't count. Yeah, no, those will be worn. Okay. Yeah, you, you have but you to, also get no benefit from You have to spend from sure. time, <laughs> you invest it, you put it on. Yeah. That's one of your And that's Got it. it. Okay, Aaron? Oh, sorry. Um, with the change to archetypes, can we expect that some of the classes that we used to have uh, in Pathfinder First Edition, like Gunslinger, that you mentioned before, kind of just come back as an archetype? Well, you guys certainly thought that when we did that as a test bed with Cavalier, that that was a good idea. Because we asked you a question and we said, hey, we, we gave a Cavalier archetype and um, it let anyone have a mount and cool Cavalier abilities. What would you think if Cavalier or other archetypes potentially, other classes potentially became an archetype? And we found out, we gave certain answers. One of them was, that was good for Cavalier, yeah. but maybe not anything else. There was one that's, that's good for Cavalier and maybe some other classes, and we had a continuum. And everyone, almost, very, very high percentages of you were strongly in favor of, at least for Cavalier, but there was a little less agreement on some of the other classes. So I would say... And generally speaking, like, Apart from the Cavalier, most classes have enough juice to do a full class. Like, you can do a full Gunslinger class, and it's not going to miss too much. The Cavalier was already kind of, like, just barely attaining full class status. I, I, I don't expect it to happen very... I, I, I think if you're curious about what... I mean, so, right, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about what we're going to do with each individual class in the future, because we're, we're still in the process of making those decisions and figuring it out. Um, but I will say this on a general scheme. If it's one of the super popular classes that everybody and their everybody and their mother was playing, I think you can expect that we're going to try and find a way to convert it as quickly as possible in a way that's responsible for the game expanding and growing at a reasonable pace. 
Um, I think there are a lot of classes that are pretty far out in the reads that we're going to look at and go, yeah, maybe that's just an archetype. Uh, I, I think, you know, Cavalier is the one that everybody seemed to go, yeah, sure, whatever. But our survey also said that almost no one was playing Cavaliers in first edition. Right. So well, I don't know that it's a great... It. Yeah, but, but that doesn't mean it's a very great test bed of that as a concept. Yeah. But I think if you look at the advanced class guide, there might be some classes that don't make it. Yeah, and I can say for sure. Aaron, uh, yeah. go ahead. Oh, well, you know, there was a question earlier on Twitter about is the maximum bonus for weapons plus three? Yes. Yes. Okay. Mea culpa. You guys asked, put down well, that. The, put the, the maximum the bonus of, of items in the yeah. core rulebook uh -huh. is three. Yes. I, the right. best area that might not be entirely true. Mm -hmm. The maximum bonus is 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 not plus three written in the rules. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but I think Jason, you might at the banquet show something that is beyond that cap. That's true. Oh yeah, yeah. I totally am. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yes, I should make will. a note of that. I almost forgot. <laughs> yeah, sure, one more. Uh, will we see a lot of support for vehicular combat in second edition moving forward past the, the initial launch? Uh, I think at some point in time we'll find a way to do vehicular combat, but it's not in the core of the game. I think there's a product that you might be announcing at the banquet. That... <laughs> Mark's right. There's a product we're announcing at the banquet. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to have vehicle rolls in it. So it, yeah. Yeah. The next book, Vehicles. <laughs> ultimate, ultimate ride. Ultimate All right, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of the show. We really appreciate having you here. We hope you enjoy the game.